before concluding our consideration of the nature of God under the question, what do we know about the faithfulness of God from the Bible, we must sum up briefly the moral attributes of God that have been considered up to this point. An attribute is simply something that is true concerning a person or thing. We human beings have attributes. Animals have attributes. Machines have attributes. The development of the various attributes concerning a person or thing is an endeavor to classify the knowledge that is available about that person or thing. This setting apart different aspects of truth by themselves helps us to comprehend the whole realm of facts, whereas if we attempted to view all the facts together, our minds are embarrassed with their limitations. This is especially true concerning the great God of the heavens. While we can observe many characteristics from the world of nature that are true about God, the Bible is the final and complete source of information which indeed is in accord with our natural observations. The Bible describes God directly to the extent of our limited ability to understand. Then it records details of God's conduct in various situations in which men's reactions have placed God. If we do not accept these at face value, we are professing that we know more than the Holy Spirit who inspired the writers of the Bible to give us these accounts. These are inner revelations of the thought life and experiential existence of the Godhead. Events and situations draw forth the activity of God, which actions reveal the very essence of God. It is so in the practical realms of life. Everything we have contact with is being put to the test. A dairy farmer, for example, may have ever so good a crop in his field, but if his cattle will not eat it and profit by it, of what value is it? It is the test that reveals the value. A mother may prepare what appears to be an excellent meal for her family, but if her family will not eat it and benefit by it, she feels that her efforts have been wasted. In corporations preparing products for the market, there is usually a test department that proves the value of a product. When an engineering department has designed and built an experimental machine, it may appear very attractive as it is painted and ready to leave the plant. But the attributes of the machine have yet to be developed. Suppose it is a machine for harvesting corn, for example. What it does in the cornfield is the great fact that needs to be learned. This is what counts. What attributes or characteristics are developed there? So as the machine operates, we study it and note down the things that are made manifest. We can only evaluate the machine as a whole by assembling before us the various details that are true about it. So it is with that measure of comprehension which we are able by the grace of God to achieve in this life concerning the Godhead. Besides the direct statements and quotations from God to man, we pour over the various detailed accounts of God's actions. 
we begin to note that this is true and that that is true. And so we build up an enumeration of facts concerning the Godhead, which greatly enlarge our overall comprehension. This in turn enlarges our appreciation and evaluation of the great nature of God that leads to that worship that is acceptable to God. This task cannot be done hurriedly or in anything but an attitude of great humility, even as Isaiah wrote so long ago, as recorded in his 66th chapter, verse 2. To this man will I look, says God, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and that trembleth at my word. Or, as the Lord Jesus described in his intimate prayer to the Father, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes, as in Matthew 11:25. Evidently, we are dependent upon the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit as we read the Bible. We will only be so taught as we prayerfully and penitently ask for understanding. But when we do, God will look toward us, and the Holy Spirit will solemnly lead us into truth concerning the great realities of the unseen world. The things that are true concerning God lend themselves to a twofold division, as we have seen. We do not generally use the word attribute with reference to the essential being and nature of God, but to the things that are true concerning the being of God. God is a spirit in essence, said Jesus in John 4:24, by which we understand that God does not have a physical body of any sort. We cannot understand this mysterious existence, of course, but neither do we understand our own spiritual nature. Who can explain what happens at death? The body weighs the same as it did before, but the life within it has ceased. The unseen man has departed. So the nature of God is unseen in its basic existence. The Bible reveals that God possesses personal attributes and is not a collection of impersonal forces. How happy we should be for this profound revelation of the nature of God. God inhabits eternity or has a definite succession in his existence. Apart from this, personal actions would be impossible. God possesses a personal intelligence or has the ability to think and reason. God extended his invitation through Isaiah in the words, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 18. Through Jeremiah, God said, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. 29, 11. Since the Bible tells us that man was created in the image of God and tells us that God reasons and thinks in the process of time, we can understand that God is an unspeakably great personal existence, similar to our own existence. But God not only possesses the ability to think and reason, but possesses an emotional quality of being as well. In 1 Samuel 2.35 it is revealed 
that God has a heart as well as a mind. I will raise up a faithful servant, God said, that shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in mine mind. God is therefore a great tender-hearted being, not a cold collection of intelligence and factual knowledge. There is something in the nature of God that reacts strongly to the emotions and attitude of man's heart. As we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. God has so involved himself with his creature man in tenderness and love that man is in a position to bring much sorrow and grief to God. When Adam and Eve followed Satan's falsehoods in the Garden of Eden, this brought unspeakable grief to God, as revealed in the third chapter of Genesis, verses 8 to 10, where Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of God when God came for a special time of manifestation and fellowship. Man had involved himself in a guilty conscience and was afraid. Think of the tragic words echoing through the garden, Adam, where art thou? It was not, of course, that God did not know where they were, but God was expressing great grief because they were not in the usual retreat of special fellowship. Think of the multiplied grief that is expressed in Genesis 6, 5-7, when the full intensity of sinful rebellion became a reality before God. Man not only had fallen into sin, but was using his God-given intelligence and imagination to further the ways of sin and to indulge himself more deeply. God repented or regretted that he had made man, we are told. Man's sin grieved him at his heart, we read. Thus God possesses an unbounding emotional nature and is capable of these tender expressions and manifestations. But the great manifestation of the heart of God is in the free pardon of repentant sinners. We read in Psalm 78:38, But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. The forgiving love of God shall be the endless joy of true Christians. In repentance we see our own unworthiness. Through faith in the death of the Lord Jesus for our sins, we are freely pardoned by the grace and mercy of God as God is moved with compassion and forgives us in great joy. Thus God possesses very tender feelings. Consider the tragedy of man, the center of God's interest, disregarding the feelings of his great creator. But God also possesses the ability of self-determination or the power of choice. The will of God is perfectly free to act and is absolutely uncaused. God is the great first cause and exercises the power of intelligent decisions of will. God, by virtue of his free will, can direct his intelligence to consider objects of thought and processes of thought. These thoughts will be accompanied by proper emotions. As a result of reasoning things through, God comes to certain decisions to bring things into existence out of nothing. God, of course, lives in the element of time or has successions in his states of mind, in his emotions, and in his decisions of will. Otherwise, God cannot think through anything nor decide anything new.
The Bible clearly reveals that God has these successions in his experiences and makes new decisions day by day. If God cannot today have a new thought that he never had before, nor a new reaction, nor a new decision that he never had made before, then who shall prove that he ever could have made such a new decision? But if God never has had a new thought, a new inner reaction, a new decision, then blind fate rules the universe and personality disappears. But who wants this state of affairs? Happily, as revealed in the Bible, the blessed word of God, we do not have to have these back-breaking concepts foisted upon us, but we have revealed an intelligent and tender-hearted creator who thought of the desirability of having a creature man who would have similar personal traits to his own and would respond in happy fellowship. Man could be a profound blessing to God, and God could make man's happiness a joyful existence. Is this what we are doing today? If not, oh, that we might repent and return to the loving God. Our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for thy precious word, which leads us into these secret understandings of thine own nature, and how we thank thee for the tenderness manifested, for the intelligence, for the purposes that thou hast formed. Now we pray that many may repent and turn from sin, be reconciled to thee through faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.